car, they're competitive, like, who, like, and literally everything. But there's also people that aren't just competitive with, like, the silly things, right? But people are really competitive with, like, who's got, like, the, the nicest clothes or the car or who has the newest phone or whatever it may be. And it's as if these people, whoever these people are, they almost need to, like, one-up everything other people have, right? I'm sure you have a, a friend or you at least know somebody that's kind of like this. Now, when you think about it, we live in a society that really kind of, one encourages this kind of competitiveness, but the other is where there's this real temptation to, comp to compare ourselves really to other people. And it's often kind of inescapable, it's unavoidable, this desire, this, this temptation to compare ourselves to other people. Think about it. Um, advertising companies, right? They, they compare their product to a similar one. Parents can compare siblings. They don't say they do, but they do, right? Or at least for their rooms for cleanliness. Or even we, right, we compare ourselves um, to one another in, in every aspect of our lives. Like, what college did you go to? What grade GPA did you get? Like, we compare our athleticism, our academics. We compare our wealth, our, our beauty, our clothes, whatever it may be. And here's one thing I was thinking about this last week. It really does take a, a I would say, a healthy dose of confidence to kind of get up every single day and to kind of go throughout your day with not feeling like this deep desire, like you don't measure up, right? I mean, when I, so I get to do junior high, high school, and even young adults here, and one of the things I've learned, right, is, is most people kind of walk around with, with I think, a pretty low self-esteem. And one of the things, one of the reasons I think we have a low self-esteem is because we have been caught in this comparison trap, right? We were constantly comparing what we have, who we are, our abilities, our interests, our likes, our friends, our income, whatever it may be, to other people. And with this kind of unavoidable urge really to compare ourselves to other people, kind of even added with the feelings of maybe feeling insecure or insignificant or not measuring up, that really leads you, that really leads me onto this road called envy to a destination called disappointment. I was reading an article this last week. Um, it took place in 2015 where Bank of America did a um, kind of a study to track what basically um, the world spent on vanity spending. And, and here's what they found. They found that we spend $4.5 trillion yearly on things like makeup, designer clothes, and Botox. That's crazy. $4.5 trillion a year. Now, there was a huge spike from the early 2000s. And what was interesting about the article is it had some sociologists that were kind of writing on this topic and, 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 and inserting why they may think um, that certain, you know, certain people are investing so much money in these types of things and why, why it's grown so fast over the last few years. And what was interesting um, is they said that the huge spike was due to social media. In fact, um, they noted that uh, cosmetic surgeries have spiked since Instagram's creation because people desire, and here's what they said, people desire the physical attributes of someone else. I had to laugh when I, when I read that, and here's why I had to laugh. Because that is literally the dictionary definition of envy. The dictionary definition of envy is this, to desire to have a quality, possession, or other desirable attribute that belongs to someone else. See, the reality is one of the greatest sins probably in your life, because it's one of the greatest sins in my life, is Envy. It's at least one of the greatest sins of this generation is envy. And see, envy happens when um, the latest iPhone gets put out, you know, iPhone 11 Pro or whatever it is. And uh, what ends up happening? All of your friends start posting about it or you start seeing all these ads or whatever it is on your uh, social media or things along those lines. And even people at work are just flaunting all of its glories, right? That it takes pictures that can like see into your soul or whatever it may be, right? And if we're not careful, we can think that we instantly need this thing. Even though our, our phone is perfectly fine, right? We can have this assumption that we almost immediately need this thing and this craving 
kind of grows as we focus on it more and more and more, so much that we will jump at the opportunity to get this thing, even if it means drowning ourselves in debt. And that's because, and we have to understand this, if there be one thing I need you guys to understand, it's that envy is a sin. And envy is a sin that's interesting because it begins with wanting something you do not have and doing whatever it takes to get that thing, even things that are immoral and even things that are unwise. What's even worse about this is uh, envy is like an appetite. And the thing about an appetite, when you think about it, is it's never really fully satisfied or finally satisfied. Let me give you an example. Um, So a while back, Josh and I, we went to um, Korean barbecue, and um, we made the mistake of ordering all of our food um, while we were hungry. And so we really shot for the stars, you know, like just, we were like, I was like, just bring 15 plates of whatever. And so I ordered way too much food than I could eat. And so anyways, we get to the end of our meat adventure and um, I'm literally just lounging back in my chair with like my head, like just like falling, my mouth open. I'm just gasping for air, right? And I have like the meat sweats. I feel like a glazed donut, right? I'm just like, it's a terrible experience, right? But so we finally leave. I finally like, I try to like wobble up to my office and do something for the rest of the day, which I couldn't. And what do you think happened about four hours later? I'm standing in front of my refrigerator, open, just the, staring at the light, hoping that something's going to lob into my mouth, right? Why? Because appetites are never really fully satisfied. They always kind of come back. What's interesting about the appetite of envy, number one, is it's never ending, and number two is I think it's actually an acquired appetite. Let me give you maybe a silly example. Years back, Chelsea and I went to um, Europe with her parents, and uh, we love trips. We love trips with her parents because they pay for everything, but... Um, the other reason we love going to Europe or anywhere else with them is um, they're kind of adventurous. And so we, uh, we were in Austria, I think. Is it Austria or German? I don't exactly remember. But there was this, uh, this cheese store that literally sold thousands of different types of cheeses. Now, they eagerly run into this store, right? Like all excited to try these different cheeses and things like that. And I went in very slowly because the whole store smelled like athlete's foot, right? It was terrible. And I hate cheese. It was terrible. And so anyways, they spend like forever in there. And I remember Doyle. Um, that's her daddy. He really kind of liked this one cheese that no one else liked. And, uh, and it was interesting as he tried to talk about the cheese that looked like a disease or a plague or something. It was like blue and it was crazy. What was interesting is when I asked him, like, you know, why, why do you like this cheese so much? He said that he had it a lot during his internship in Spain. And that he said, I, I said, well, did you always like this cheese? And he said this. Well, at first I didn't, but because I tried it over and over, I developed an acquired taste for it. So you acquire the uh, call it the, the, the taste or the appetite for exotic cheeses, the more that you try them, the more that you consume them. In a very similar way, and I want you to track with me, you acquire this, the appetite of envy by constantly comparing yourself to other people. And so the big question we're going to kind of spend the next 20 or so minutes talking about is this. How do we, how do you, how do we safeguard ourselves from envy? Tonight I'm going to give you four things, four steps that we can apply now that can help safeguard us from envy, from this deep desire of wanting what others want. And here's why, and we'll talk about it in a second, why envy is such a disastrous thing for you and me. Because all envy is, is you being uncomfortable with who you are and and your gifts and your talents and where you are in life, wishing that you could have the things that others have so that finally you feel like you could be okay or feel satisfied or at peace, and that's a lie. Wanting what other people have is never going to arrest these these desires in your own heart because it's never ending. And so the first thing I'm going to teach you guys today would be this. It would be don't play the comparison game. I'm going to give you four verbs, but the, the first one is don't play the comparison game. So some of you, right, some of you have been playing the game and you've racked up just tons of amounts of credit card debt or whatever it may be because you're trying to keep up with someone else's lifestyle. 
right? Maybe it's the Kardashians. I don't know who it is, but you're trying to keep up with, with someone's lifestyle. And, and so you kind of always have the nicest thing. And you got the iPhone 11 Pro for selfies and sushi, right? But you make 12 pesos a day, right? So it just isn't, it's unwise. Other of you have stared at the pages of Instagram too long, and it's damaged your confidence in yourself or your self-esteem. See, if you're anything like me, I'm willing to bet that you have, uh, you've stared into someone else's lifestyle and compared yourself to them. Like I said, what school do they go to, whatever, what job that they have, what they're eating, where they, uh, who are their friends, um, what they're wearing, and, and even what they have. And if you're anything like me, you've learned this truth, that it's robbed you from being okay with who you are and where you are in life, which is point number two. It's this. Know that envy robs you. Envy robs you. And here's what it robs us of. It, it robs you of peace. It, envy robs you of self-esteem. Envy robs your ability to be grateful and envy robs your ability to be okay. And that is because this. There is no model, there is no strategy of wanting what others have that will actually make you feel okay with yourself. If I could communicate anything to you about envy, it would be this. That envy is a black hole. And envy creates a black hole in your heart and in my heart that actually consumes our self-esteem. Maybe even more is the reason is because you will never actually find meaning, like I said earlier, trying to gather value or acceptance or whatever it is you're actually looking for by trying to get things that other people have because envy is a broken path to meaning. In other words, you will never find meaning, value, fulfillment, purpose, or any of these things like that through being envious of what others have. But here's what's interesting. That's exactly what culture teaches us. When you think about it, our, our culture almost encourages us to want what others have. I love the way that one um, Christian author, his name is Sky Jathani, says this. We assign value to ourselves and others based on the goods we purchase. One's identity is now constructed by the clothes you wear, the vehicle you drive, the music on your iPod, iPhone. Uh, in short, you are what you consume. Let me tell you about what the, what the problem with that mentality is, the huge error in, in, in the way in which most people live their lives. If you are what you consume or what you can acquire or gather, then you're going to develop an un quenchable appetite that nothing will ever be able to fulfill. Maybe even worse is that desire will rot you from the inside out. Here's what Solomon said. He was the, one of the wisest guys to ever live. He says in Proverbs 14:30, he says, a heart of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. See, some of you have probably rotted away your finances because of envy. Some of you have maybe even rotted away your relationships, people that were close to you because of envy. Some of you may even rotted away your self-esteem because of envy. See, if scripture indicates or illuminates or shows you and I anything, it would be that envy rots you and me from the inside out. And so the third thing that I want, uh, the point of application would be this. Look to scripture to see envy's cures and consequences. One of the uh, most well-known stories in scripture, I think actually really communicates this, this well, how our desires motivated by, lead, uh, by envy can lead us to do things we never thought we would do and bring us to places we never thought we would be. It's actually found in the book of 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12, and it's called the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, I want you to imagine this with me, right? So, restless one night, King David, he's pacing his, his palace, or what do you want, to, on the top, and he glances out over to the, the city, and, and all over the city, he can see gardens, he can see homes, he can see tons of different um, people and things along those lines, and as he's pacing it one night, he glances off and he sees uh, a woman, she's, she's bathing on top of her house. I guess that's where their shower was. Weird place, but anyways, he sees that, and, and so he grabs one of his servants, he says, hey, I want you to bring her, or go see who that is, and then bring her to me. So the servant comes back, and he says, well, who is she? And she says, her name is Bathsheba, she's actually one of your 
best friend's wives, Uriah, who's actually a general in your army, is off at war right now. He says, I don't care about that, bring her to me. What's up happening is uh, David ends up sleeping with her. And about a month later, she comes over to David and says, um, I'm pregnant. And, and, and everyone's going to find out that either you forced me to sleep with you or that I cheated on my husband. Um, and, and so what, what are we going to do? And so David starts to freak out. Right? He starts to like panic and try to come up with some type of plan to, to figure out what, what, he, what he can do to keep all his secret safe. And so he goes, aha, I, I have an idea of something I can do. So he decides to bring Uriah home from battle for a night so that he can sleep with his wife. Off, They're married. And so that's what he does. He brings Uriah back from the war. And Uriah is such an honorable man. He says, I can't go. I can't even see my wife. My men are being slaughtered out there on the battlefield. I'll, I'll just sleep on the palace floor. Now he's like, frick, now what am I going to do, right? So he goes, all right, I'll keep you one more day, and here's what we'll do. I'll throw the biggest party. We'll invite everybody. I'll get you smashed. You'll go home and sleep with your wife. He gets so drunk, the Bible says, he literally just passes out in front of everybody, like in the dance floor, just like right on the, right on the floor. So everyone knows he didn't, he didn't go home, right? So David's like, <laughs> like now what, right? Like now, well, now what am I going to do? And he goes, I'm left with one thing. To keep my secret safe, there's only one thing I really can do. And so he writes a, a note, gives the note to Uriah. Uriah has no idea that this note inside it literally says, send Uriah to the front lines to be slaughtered. So Uriah walks over to the lead general of the army, hands the note to the general. The general opens it up. He's like, do you know what this says? He's like, no. He's like, all right, bro. He's like, well, you got to go to the front line. And Uriah ends up dying that day. And all is well, right? David's taking, eating selfies, or taking selfies, eating sushi. He's loving it, right? But it's at this point, at this point that Nathan, God sends a guy named Nathan to accuse David. Now, Nathan comes to David and shares a story. And it's an interesting story about a rich man and a poor man. The story's point really is, there's a bunch of points, but one would be to change David's perspective. To change David's perspective on what he did, why he did it, how evil it was, and that it was sinful. So Nathan tells the story of this really rich and powerful man and, uh, that is stolen from a poor man, and he's stolen something from the poor man that the poor man dearly loves. So David hears this, and he's irate. The Bible says he like, literally loses it, right? And, 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 uh, and he can't believe that someone, especially someone in power, would do something like this to someone who isn't. And he yells, and this is what he says. He says, surely the man who's done this deserves death. To which, to which Nathan kind of just smiles. And he says this. He says, hey, God sent me to tell you that you're that guy. Can you imagine how awkward that would have been at that moment? Like, I was kidding. I meant uh, not die, but like maybe like not die. I don't know, right? It was probably a pretty awkward moment, right? But what's interesting is at this moment, the Bible says that David immediately admits what he did was wrong. And then secondly, he repents. He, he changes his behavior and asks God for forgiveness. At this moment, David's perspective was changed. See, he saw that what he did and what he was yearning for was, one, wrong, and that the desires motivated by envy really did lead him to a place he never thought he'd go and to do things he never thought he would do. And that brings us to point number four, which would be maybe the last one for us tonight. And that's what David needed and what really, I think, Nathan helped him do. would be this. Number four is get a better perspective. And here's why this is important. We become envious of others when we lack a godly perspective. Let, let me explain how maybe powerful this is about changing your perspective. So one of my uh, most all-time favorite incredible stories comes in the form of a movie called Mean Girls. And here's why it is one of my favorite all-time stories. And by the way, I think this should be taught like curriculum in high school. Like every ninth grader should like be forced to watch Mean Girls, right? And I actually think, I think it's a really good movie, and here's why. In the movie, uh, Katie, who smells like Caddy, I don't know, she's already should be made fun of, but anyways, Katie... Um, she's a homeschool teenager, and uh, she just moved to the States and is thrusted in kind of the, the social hierarchy of high school, call it. And she is kind of accepted by the popular girl. They're known as the 
plastics, right? And then she learns kind of what it means to be the queen bee, whatever that means. And so what I really like about this movie and what's so good about it is, the, is this journey that kind of Katie goes on because she doesn't end up really cooler than she was in the beginning. That doesn't really ever happen. If that, I don't even know what it means to be cooler. But anyways, that's not what ends up happening. But rather, she realized the entire hierarchical structure of high school is stupid and dumb. And that this kind of whole perspective change has totally affected the way that she's going to view herself, her friends, and this whole thing called high school. Here's the question. Can you imagine going back to high school with the confidence and the perspective you have on life now? Like, if you could just infuse who you are now into, a ninth, into you in ninth grade, how much better of an experience that would have been, right? I hated high school. High school sucked, right? I'm also a high school pastor, and high school's rough, man. It, it, really, it really is. I mean, how different of an experience that would be probably for you, how that would change your desires, how that would change your, your desire to compare yourself to other people, the things that you actually want, and even your self-esteem. I mean, students say things to me literally all the time that have the, would have the ability to rock me if I was in high school. It's just this last week, this kid came up to me and said, my sermon sucked. I said, so does your personality. Uh, <laughs> get out of here, you stupid. Uh, it just bounced off me, right? I don't care what a high school has to say about me, right? And I don't care because I'm no longer playing, right? That, that comparison game, that trap I used to play in high school. That's because my perspective has changed. But the issue, right, the issue for most of us is that although we've graduated and now we're actually playing under the lights, right, we, where maybe the comparison game is even more intense and real because we have more and we're working for more. But let me say this. If what is true about what we just said, about how perspective, right, really has the, the ability to alter how we feel about ourselves, about others, and kind of even wanting what others have, then could it also be true, or at least possible, to also change our perspective and our current life stage now? I mean, if that were possible, that would probably be one of the keys, right, to unlocking us from this rat race of comparison and envy. And so I think, one, I think it is one of the keys. And I think that's why Paul addresses this. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2, he says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, I love the verse for really two reasons. Number one would be because of the imagery of do not conform to this world. It's kind of like the imagery I get is don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But secondly, because the Greek word here for conform means to fashion your perspective to. So I rewrote it, and here's what it could say. It says, do not fashion your perspective to the ways of this world or to the ways of culture, but be transformed by changing what you believe and see to be true. I mean, just imagine, just imagine, right, if you could go back and give the confidence, the perspective, the emotional maturity, the spiritual maturity you have now to you as a ninth grader. I, I doubt, right, that that ninth grader would have would struggle or would think about or be concerned with all of the things that your average ninth grader is concerned and struggling with. Now imagine, if now, you and I, we could begin to see how God sees you and how God sees the world around you. In other words, if you and I could get a better perspective on what really matters in life. Every year I tell our seniors um, that <laughs> everything for the last four years about all that anxiety and pressure like in the real life is like insignificant. Like, I don't really know anybody that's a young adult that's like, I just really want to be popular. I get a lot of Instagram followers. I go, ew. You're like, what are you, like a night? Like, those things don't matter anymore. But they consume, I'm still a high school, they consume their minds. And it's, it's all their thoughts. But the older you go, you kind of see that things are, these things are silly. Like, why am I so anxious and worried about it? The things that you were worried about now are things when you're 60, you'll go, what? <laughs> like, why was I worried about that? Is it possible for you and I to get the, the, the stability that we would have when we're older, maybe, 
because of, of perspective now. And, and, I, and I, think, I think, yes, I, I do think you and I can get that perspective now. And if we could, how would that change your desires? Your, your desire to compare yourself to other people or want what others have, how would that affect the way that you view yourself, your value, and your self-esteem? See, the perspective that I want us to gather is really to understand what true freedom is. And true freedom is knowing who you are in Christ. It is knowing where your value comes from, allowing him to communicate value to you so that no one else can communicate value. Don't, I don't care what this kid said about me, about my sermon or whatever it is. His, his opinion is insignificant. He's, I find this individual, I care about him, but his opinion, right off me. What if we could live our lives that way? where the opinions of other people don't really have the, the ability to totally alter the way that we think about ourselves, our careers, our school, and our lives. And I think that envy really comes in two forms. The first, I think it comes from an ignorance of who we are in Christ. Because, and I need you to track with me, because it is believing a narrative about who you are, I think it's believing the wrong narrative about who you are, that you need what others have because without that you are worthless and others are better than you. That's the opposite of what Scripture says. Like literally the direct opposite. And then the second, it comes from a dissatisfied heart. See, we experience envy when we cannot have what we think our heart needs or desires. Because it doesn't really need that new phone. What your heart really needs is to be loved, fully known, accepted, and seen. And that is exactly what a flourishing, that'd be the one, flourishing relationship with Christ brings to your heart. And so let me say it this way. We break the chains of envy in our lives in doing two things. Number one, trusting and thanking God. Listen to what David said in the book of Psalms. He says this, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. And so let me give you two steps. Step number one is we break the chains of envy by trusting in the giver of all things, God. Number two, or step two, we break the chains of envy by living with the spirit of thanksgiving towards God, and this is why. Envy, we become envious when we start counting the blessings of other people, not the blessings in our own life. And so focusing on what you don't have rather than on what you do will always bring envy, and envy will always, always, always bring disaster. And so as we begin to kind of wrap up today, I'm going to ask you guys a challenge. Giving the week of Thanksgiving, here's the challenge I want you guys to do. I want you to spend 30 minutes this next week examining your life as thoroughly as you do the lives of those around you with the sole purpose of seeing how God has been incredible and good in your life. And then I want you to take some time to actually thank God for his goodness in your life and being better towards you, towards you are, towards him. When I was, um, when I was five, I, uh, I found a dog, pretty weird, in a park. Little Yorkshire Terrier, and uh, <laughs> we couldn't find the owner. Like we, we tried, like put up posters everywhere, seeing if he was chipped. We couldn't find the owner, and so um, we we decided to keep him because not like we're going to kick him out, right? And so I remember the 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 first night we had him in our house. My dad came home from work, and uh, the dog like literally like spazzed out, like literally freaked out, like ran, um, and like was hiding behind my legs and like shaking, like who's this weirdo coming in the house, you know? And um, my dad could, like, not even get close to the dog for weeks. I'm like, what the heck? Like, you've never met before, right? Like, Dad, did you, like, do something to this dog before we picked him up? You're like, what? No, I've never seen a dog, right? So, like, what? You know, so we think in some sense of the way the dog is, was abused by probably an adult male. 
week after week after week, month after month, my dad would, would come home and this dog would literally just run, hide in a closet, whatever it was, and just shake. It was so sad. So it took months of my dad getting on his hands and his knees, going to where the dog would be, laying on the floor for like 30 minutes, just softly speaking to this dog and like putting treats near it uh, to kind of you know, build its trust. And, and, and it took months for this dog to finally come out and trust that my dad was a good guy, a guy that wasn't going to hurt him in some sense of the way. I remember one day uh, coming home from school, and it was like this like, weird thing. I came home from school, and uh, uh, th- my dad and the dog are like running around in the front yard, like high-fiving each other. It was like my dog, became, like, dad became like dog whispers, the weirdest thing, right? I'm like, what the heck's going on, right? And so like, we, the dog, like, my, my, my dad like whistles, the dog like runs in the house. I'm like, what the freak? Right, and so the, the dog runs into the house, right? And my dad sits down, and I sit on the chair next to him. And the dog literally jumps up my dad's lap, rolls over so my dad could like, you know, uh, rub its belly. I'm thinking, like, what's, what is going on? Like, this, is, this dog was terrified you like 24 hours ago. Like, what happened? And here's what he said. I thought it was so interesting. He said, I don't know. I just kept caring for him, and he finally started trusting me and stopped being so worried and anxious about everything. You know, once your heart, once my heart, knows the Father is good, that God is good, it will willing, willingly surrender itself into trusting him, and then it will allow, your heart, my heart, will allow God to actually communicate worth and value to it. See, envy is broken when you know that you can trust God because God is good and he's doing something incredible and good in your life and in my life. And if you really believe that, if you really believe that God was doing something incredible, God was doing something good in your life, you wouldn't be so concerned about looking at the lives of other people. And so tonight, here's what I want to do. I want to end reading the words of Paul in the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I'll read it and then I'll pray for us. He says this, We know that God makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. Let me pray for us. God, I, uh, yeah, may, may we, may I be more cognizant of how you have been incredible and good in my life. Father, may I learn, God, to be content with the things that I have. May we learn to be content with the things that we have. May we be more cognizant of your goodness in our life every day. Father, we love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Guys, thanks for coming tonight. We'll see you next week.